0: Well, as the children are going out, once again, we give thanks to the Lord for so many young children. Um, We are ending our year with the book of Hebrews on the theme of pressing on to maturity. And part of growing in maturity is knowing the Word of God. So today after service, uh, we are actually resuming our uh, Bible study on the Gospel of Mark. So those are those of you to uh, go and join the class and continue to learn the Word of God. Uh, Let us pray. Father, as you open your word, I pray for the Holy Spirit to convict our hearts that we will see Christ lifted up and you glorified. We pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen. And it was slightly before dawn, and in front of the National Stadium, there were thousands of people gathering. Old folks, young kids, young men and women with rippling biceps and exposed mid-riffs. They were all stretching, getting warmed up in the cool morning air. And then there was a blast of a horn. And like buzzing bees, we began moving to the front line, the starting line, pushing, jostling, trying to get to the front. And you can literally smell the tension and excitement in the air because of the proximity of body heat and sweat. And then the second horn blast, and we were off. Now, this was a marathon more than 26, 27 years ago. Okay, that I took part in my first and hopefully last. And at the time we. A bunch of us, we were just out of officer cadet school, and thought we thought we could run. None, we didn't prepare or train for the marathon. We just turned up after registering and ran. So I was running, trying to get to the front, and then there she was. Now, at the time, I was not a believer yet. Okay, and so there was this uh, long-legged person wearing a bright yellow T-shirt, a sporty cap, a ponytail and a walkman. Now, this was a time when the, a walkman was still a thing, okay? So I said, if you don't know what's a walkman, it's okay. <laughs> now, I ran beside her trying to keep step, hoping that, you know, for quite a distance, you know, hoping that our cadence or my manliness or at least my sweat flying in her direction will get, get her attention. Okay, but I was in vain. She was just listening to her music, running slowly. So I gave up. I thought, ah, forget it. I ran up ahead. And you know, in a marathon, the first 30 kilometers is relatively easy. But once you hit the 30th kilometer, you run into a brick wall. After that, it's like you just want to collapse. Especially we didn't train. So every step we took, it was like needles, thousands of needles poking at my ankles and my knees. Because we were not used to the pounding. You know, after that, the race, for three straight days, I just laid in bed. I couldn't walk. Anyway, at about nine something, I was at my 30th mile. And the sun was scorching the earth. And there seemed to be one concentrated sunbeam just focusing on me. You know, wherever I ran, it was just following me. And I just wanted to give up. And suddenly, those familiar long legs, bright yellow t-shirt, a sporty cap and a ponytail with a walkman, came sashaying by me at the same slow pace. Unbelievable! With all my manhood, right, or all my all the strength that I could master up. I tried to keep pace with her, but I could not. And so I just wanted to crumble into a a pile of human flesh in embarrassment. I never expected a marathon to be so tough. You know, friends, the Christian life is a journey of a lifetime. It is a marathon and not a sprint. But sometimes you go about it like a sprint We get busy serving in this ministry and that ministry, getting involved here and there, but we forget the purpose of following Christ. What is the purpose? So that we can have a better life, a more blessed life, so that we can fulfill our dreams? Well, the purpose of following Christ is to become Christ-like and to cause others around us to grow in Christ-likeness. That's the ultimate purpose of why God the Lord saved us and kept us on this earth and not just bring us to heaven. But because we forget, we get burned out. Some people, we, we're busy serving and after a season in life, we just give up. Or maybe like this, during the circuit breaker, right, when we stop all activities, there are people who give us feedback that suddenly they feel like they are estranged with God because we realize their whole spirituality was ba- ba- built upon activities. And so we begin to despise the teaching of God and wonder, why should we gather together? Why should we gather for worship in small groups? For some of us, it's the challenges we face in life, in our careers, our marriages, and what have you. And our hearts grow hardened. We begin to doubt God's Word. Or perhaps we are just tired of fighting sin, fighting temptations. We think, look at a person who's not a Christ follower, but it seems okay. So we begin to despise or defy the grace of God. Why do I need this grace? Or maybe, for most of us, God has blessed us. We hit retirement age, it's time to kick back, go for tours, look after our grandchildren, time for other people to serve God and do things. God has blessed us and answered our prayers. You know, you succeed in your career, you get a promotion, you're able to start a family, but we get so busy with the family, with the career. Our hearts begin to grow cold and dull. We begin to drift away from Christ. Now these are the five warnings given to us in the book of Hebrews. At the time, the believers face challenges and so they begin to drift, to become dull, to doubt God's word, to turn away from the faith back to Judaism. And so in the book of Hebrews, the author writes about the superiority of Christ. If you turn away from Christ, where else would you turn to? He warns his readers. And the book ends with chapter 11 to 13, with faith, hope, and love. How do we continue to stimulate each other to love, to loving acts? That is to have endurance of hope, a hope that endures, that is Jesus Christ. And how do you see that? By faith. And so chapter 11, 12, and 13 talks about faith, hope, and love. And today from Hebrews 12, 12, 1 to 3, we talk about endurance of hope. Hebrews 12 verse 1 to 3 tells us that following Christ is a marathon and not a sprint. And so, we look to three people. To others, to other saints, to ourselves and to Christ. To others, to ourselves and to Christ. So first, following Jesus is a marathon and not a sprint. Let me read to you the text. Therefore, since we have so great a cloud of witnesses surrounding us, let us also lay aside every encumbrance, and the sin which so easily entangles us. Let us run with endurance the race that is set before us, fixing our eyes on Jesus, the author and perfecter of faith, who for the joy set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. For consider him who has endured such hostility by sinners against himself, so that you will not grow weary and lose heart. Of the text here, there's only one main clause, which is the thrust of all all that he's saying. It is, let us run with endurance the race that is set before us. And this is a summary for the whole of chapter 12. It says the race is set before us. The Greek athlete will run the race. And the race is marked out by three pillars. The start point, the middle point, and the end point. So it is set before him. And it tells us this, ray, this following Jesus is a race. The word race is argon, When we get the word agony or agonize. It tells us following Jesus is an agony. It's a struggle. It's like, what? I thought following Jesus, you know, should be, it gets better, right? It should be a smooth sailing life. It is, but at the same time, you know, when we follow Christ, things that we don't used to struggle with, now we struggle because we realize now it's a sin. Right? And the more we grow, the more we know God, the, the more we understand of His holiness, the more we realize how unholy we are. And so it is an argon, it's a race, it's a struggle. Now, that may not be something we, we can accept. Maybe, and what, how we look at life is, is what we call a philosophy of life. If our philosophy is that I should pursue my happiness and you know, life should be smooth sailing, that's your philosophy, right? But if your philosophy is unable to meet the reality of life, Right? When you meet troubles, you struggle, you say, why life like that? That means your philosophy is inadequate. That means you need to grow it, expand it. And so that is the process of maturing and growing. The Christian life is an argon, a struggle. Why? There was once a farmer, he grew soybeans and there was a lot of rain. And so the beans, soybeans sprouted out. They looked really strong and abundant. But he was worried. So someone asked him, why are you so worried? This is because all this, even though you look at them, they are very strong, right? And they are growing in abundance, but they are fragile. Because of the rain, the roots are very shallow. They didn't need to grow deep roots to, to reach other sources of water. And so if a drought comes, even if it's a short drought, all the crops will be wiped out. Why do we need to struggle? So that we can grow deeper roots now isn't this what Jesus said in the parable of the sower? Right? You sow the seed, the seed grow up, looks good, but when the sun comes up, they die. And so in following Jesus in this journey, we may have a form of godliness, a form of religiosity, but we cannot endure. If we cannot face up to challenges, if it's not intentional and, and not deliberate, then we have only a form of Christianity that is outward. A friend of mine is a barista. Actually, he's my children's godfather. He said this to, to me. He says, Endurance is a caffeine of Christianity. Christianity without endurance is like coffee without caffeine. It is decaffeinated Christianity which is powerless like decaffeinated coffee. Now, this is only for coffee lovers, right? And so I ask you, you know, do you have a decaffeinated Christianity? See, deficient theology leads to inadequate philosophy, which results in poorly formed spirituality. What I mean is our understanding of God, you know, is that He gives us whatever we want and we are just blessed and, and you know, all the good things we can get. Then there is an inadequate philosophy of life. We meet challenges and we wonder why. We struggle And our spirituality is unhealthy. It's malnourished. It's not rigorous. It cannot endure. And that is why the Apostle Paul in Colossians 2 says, Therefore, as you have received Christ Jesus the Lord, so walk in Him, having been firmly rooted and now being built up in Him, establish in your faith, just as you were instructed and overflowing with gratitude. A maturing faith is one that is rooted, firmly rooted in Christ. How do you know that you have a rooted faith? that your life is overflowing with gratitude. Because come what may, we continue to believe in the sovereignty of God. Whatever happens, we believe in the goodness of God and hence, we have gratitude. So do you have a firmly rooted faith or merely a decaffeinated form of Christianity? As we grow in our faith, it gets sweeter by and by because the more we know of God, the more we can rely on Him. But it doesn't mean it gets easier. Sometimes it gets confusing, right? It's like a child when he's young, you give them very few choices so that, you know, they, they, will, they don't have to choose. But as they mature, you give them more and more choices, right? So sometimes you pray, God, please close all the doors, you know, and just open one. So I know this is where you want me to go. And that is good. God does that. But you realize as you mature in the faith, God opens all the doors. Why? Because He wants you to choose. Maturity in the book of Hebrews is understanding God, what is right and what is wrong from the Word of God. Discerning good and evil from the Word of God and so we make choices that pleases God, that, that pursues Him rather than ourselves. That's why Hudson Taylor, the great man of faith that God have, had used mightily, he said, in the younger days, things came so clearly and so quickly. But now as I have gone on and God has used me more and more, I seem often to be like a man going in a fog. I do not know what to do. This is a man that God used greatly right, to start OMF. He says, when in his younger days, he prays and God answers and it's clear. But you know, as he grows in the Lord, it's not so clear. But can we accept that, that that is what maturity is? Learning to make choices, God-pleasing choices, pursuing the desires of God. Friends, the Christian life is a marathon and not a sprint. And so how do we run this race Scripture tells us to look at three people. First, to the saints, second to ourselves, third to Christ. It begins to look at the saints as an encouragement. Therefore, since we have so great a cloud of witnesses surrounding us, the Greek athlete runs in an arena called a stadium. Why? Because the race is 600 feet long or one stadion long. So that's why today we have stadium. And in the stadium, there are tears upon tiers of spectators, like, like a cloud of witnesses. But these are no ordinary spectators. Each of them actually wear a medal, meaning they finish the race. Alright? Scripture says, if you look closely at the people cheering, they bear the marks of mutilation and scars of persecution. Why? Verse 1 says, therefore, it's the conclusion from chapter 11, what we saw last week. Who are these witnesses? like Noah, like Abraham. Ordinary people like you and I, but they are flawed, right? They struggle. But because of faith, they responded in obedience. So they became witnesses. They are not passive. The word witnesses in Greek is "martus," Where we get the English word, martyrs. So what does it mean to be a witness for Christ? You know, it's not merely talking about it is sacrificially living our lives. And so the whole of chapter 11 in the summary that we read last week, let me remind you, it describes the, the, these cloud of witnesses. They are people who quenched the power of fire, escaped the edge of sword from weakness, were made strong, became mighty in war, put foreign armies to flight. Women received back their dead from resurrection. Others were tortured, not accepting their release, so that they might obtain a better resurrection. And others experienced mockings and scourgings. Yes, also chains and imprisonment. They were stoned. They were sworn in two. They were tempted. They were put to death with the sword. They went about in sheepskins, in goatskins, being destitute, afflicted, ill-treated. Men of whom the world was not worthy, wandering in deserts and mountains and caves and holes in the ground. When you look at those Christians, they were nobody. No power, no status. They had to wear sheepskins to hide themselves in caves. And yet, Scripture tells us they are those of whom the world is not worthy. You know, last week after I preached, a sister in the Chinese congregation told me, she says that it's so humbling to realize that's how God looks at us. Ordinary, simple people. But because of faith that results in obedience, Scripture says we are whom The world is not worthy. Who are these witnesses? Who are these witnesses for you? It could be people who have gone before us. could be, in this context, the Old Testament saints. But it could have been people who set the example for us. The two ladies who went door-to-door knocking on Queenstown Estate that started QBC. Yesterday, I received news that Graham Walker, the missionary who facilitated the transaction of the land for $1 from Southern Baptist Convention missionaries to us. He spent 30 years in Singapore giving his life, impacting thousands of people. It could be people that we know. Auntie Jane, right? You know, and I, I, I only got to know her short, a short time, slightly more than a year. Many of you know her better. And I've said I have done many funerals, you know. You know, Pastor, we don't have a lot of things, but what I do a lot is funerals. But you know, attending her funeral is is probably the most profoundly moving funeral I've ever attended. The only one we held in church. And you know, people from all walks of life came up to testify of how her life impacted them. It could be our deaconess, Irene. I just read a letter this week that she wrote to one of her brother to encourage him to keep the faith. And we think about her life, her journals, how she faced life, how she faced death. It was a life of faith. It could be people who are still living in our midst. And the question we ask is, how then can I also be part of the, these witnesses that one day my life will tell a story for those who come behind us? These clouds of witnesses could be people we read in books. My younger days as a Christian, you know, a lot of the people that inspired me were biographies. And you know, the one that marked my life the most was a missionary called Jim Elliott. 1956, together with four other missionaries, they martyred in South America. And the, word, the, the statement he said that he is no fool to give what he cannot keep to gain what he cannot lose deeply marked my life because at every critical juncture of my life, I will ask, what is it that I cannot keep for eternity? There's no eternal value. That I have to surrender even though maybe I don't want to in exchange for what is Eternal. So look, recently at my funer- uh, the funeral, my birthday, <laughs> it's okay, you know, we, the Apostle Paul says, right, we all bear the marks of death with us, so it's, every day we are a funeral, okay? Uh, so the, the, my, my friend, right, the guy I led to Christ, uh, my kid's godfather, he's a barista, so he texted me, you know, he said, hey, you're getting up in age, you know, every time I text you or talk to you, you're busy meeting somebody, you need to slow down and smell the roses. You know what I texted him? The words from Jim Elliot, I said, God, I pray thee, like these idol sticks of my life and I, may I burn for thee. Consume my life for it is thine. I seek not a long life, but a full one like you, Lord Jesus. I like this because I like to idol. But you know, there are many things that I, we can do now and I think I also can do in heaven, so I don't need to put in much effort. But what is it that I cannot do in heaven? What is it that I must do now so that it has eternal value? Friends, who are the witnesses, the cloud of witnesses that has gone before you? They can encourage you in this marathon. And the pertinent question is how can you become part of the cloud of witnesses? Are you simply going to let, let, let the idol sticks of your life continue to lay idle? The Christian life is a marathon. So let us look at the saints as an encouragement Let us look in ourselves as an examination. As I said, there's only one main clause in this statement. It is, let us run the race of endurance. There are three subordinate clauses. Firstly, look at the cloud of witnesses. Secondly, let us lay aside every encumbrance and the sin which so easily entangles us. What is this encumbrance? The Greek runners, if you look at them, they train themselves until they are all muscles, you know, like the statue of David. No extra fats because the extra fat is extra weight, the encumbrance. And you know, when they race, they run naked. Because the clothes are encumbrance, entangles them. That is why the author uses these words. You know, we do not have to run naked, but what is the encumbrance? He describes it as the sin which easily entangles us. You know, in my younger days when I was waiting for the bus at the bus stop, because you don't have a now, you cannot be like this, you know. So I will just imagine and say, oh, this person, what if, this girl, right, someone come along and snatch the bag what am I going to do? Am I pretend? No, I never see, or am I going to chase after that person and risk my life? Now at the age, of course, risk your life. Now a different story, but you know, I would chase after them. I grab the bag and be the hero, right? And when you chase, you no, know, you take off the, my backpack and fling it aside. I I won't run with the backpack. You know, Singapore students, how heavy their bag is. <laughs> Right? You fling it aside because what? That is an encumbrance. That is an additional weight. That is the idea here where you run, lay aside every encumbrance and the author defines it as the sin, the besetting sin, the pattern of thought, the pattern of behaviour that stumbles us. And so we ask, you know, what is your besetting sin? It could be pride. But you know, many times pride comes out because we are insecure. We puff ourselves up, we say things, do things that appears prideful because it covers our insecurity. Because it could be we spend a lot of time on social media and know what happens? We become discontent with our lives. You avoid this person every day like in Maldives, you know. And we struggle with discontentment. It could be indulging in our flesh. Watch movies on online, play games, like me, right? Watch many. I share with you all in one week I watched six series, Korean series, not six episodes, you know. Each series got 12 to 18 episodes. What happens is that you indulge in your flesh and I realise it dulls your spirituality. It dulls my spiritual appetite. What is your besetting sin? How do you know? Well, it's in our daily quiet time. It's in our rhythm of grace, in our spiritual disciplines where we come before the Lord, the Word of God, the Spirit of God, exposes our hearts and we see what is it we are struggling with. Time we spend in silence and solitude. Recently, I went for a silent retreat and I reviewed my journals for the last three years. I realized every year there's a theme and this year, I think you all know my theme, you know, is buying house. Of course, I realized the idol in my life is convenience. Okay, I can accept a lower standard of living. I want to serve God, you know, a simple life. That's my life goal. But you know what? I realized I always tend towards convenience, easy life. Beginning of year, I tried to do that, then God said no, right? He says, what you what is it? What, what you need, God will provide. What you don't have means you don't need. So I said, okay, can I wait? After 10 months, end of the year, I thought, ah, now it's time, you know. I I probably whatever I need, what the reason I need to stay there is done. So I tried and I failed. God asked, Can you be generous if you make this commitment? And I went like this. Yes, yes, I can, I can. I tried but I failed. And you know, when I was dealing with my disappointment that morning, I read Isaiah 55, verse 1 and 2. It says, why are you spending money on things that do not satisfy? And the next two verses, it says, my thoughts are higher than your thoughts. My ways are higher than your ways. You know, friends, as a Christian, we have more struggles because we want to pursue holiness. But I tell you, at the same time, we have more joy. Much more joy because, you know, when God speaks there's this sweetness, there's this peace, there's this joy because we know we're trying to please God. I ask you, what is your besetting sin? The sin that so easily entangles you. The Christian life is a marathon so we look at other saints as an encouragement. We look at ourselves as an examination. And finally, we look to Jesus as a supreme example. The third subordinate clause, Fixing our eyes on Jesus, the author and perfecter of faith. The idea is that as the Greek runner runs, you know the three pillars, right? He runs the race. And the third pillar is where the judges sit. And they have the, the prize, which is the wreath. So the runner will keep their eyes on the wreath and the prize and continue running. The author is saying Jesus is that prize. Keep your eyes on Jesus and run. And when we keep our eyes on Jesus, it means we look away, right? We look away from something to look to something, correct? What do we look away from? Our sins, our flesh, our ambition, our, desi- our desires, but most importantly, our self-condemnation. Because you say, I cannot make it. I'm weak. I struggle. I'm sinful, which is true. That is why the author says you fix your eyes on Jesus. Who is this Jesus? Of all the things he can use to describe Jesus, he says he's the author and perfecter of our faith. The author, Archigos. In the first sermon of the book of Hebrews, I explained this word, arch-ego. The one that started the champion. When David fought Goliath on behalf of the Israelites, he was their champion. Jesus is our champion. He is the one that started us in this race. Author and perfecter. Perfecter, t- Talion. You know the last word that Jesus said on the cross? What is it? Tetelestai. It's the same word, same root word. He said it is finished. What is finished? Our salvation is finished. He paid for our sins so that his righteousness become ours, our sins become his. So what the text is telling us is that Jesus is the one who started you in this race. He's the one that will finish for you. So you may be weak. You may be discouraged. You may be struggling, but focus on Jesus, not on yourself. Question is, who are we focusing on? You know the army, right? Sometimes you have night exercise. So we'll be walking a distance away from each other. When the person in front of you stop, you stop. When they move, you move. How do you know that person is moving? We put this little light on the helmet behind, you know, because you cannot see sometimes. You know the asylum stick, the thing that you break and then it lights up, right? The glow stick. So you take out some, a bit of the liquid and you put in a little straw in the helmet. So there was one time I was walking and I saw the light stop. I stopped and I fell asleep. I was too tired. I fell asleep for a few, a few moments only. I, I woke up and said, eh, it's gone. So I panicked. Then I run, run, run in front. Ah, then I saw the light. I was relieved. And I followed this light for a good five to ten minutes, okay, quite a long time. And then suddenly I thought something is wrong. Because this light was going like that. So, what is that? I ran ahead and I realized it was a firefly. You know, I took my eyes just for a moment away from their light and I got lost. The author is saying fixing your eyes. The idea is continually, deliberately, with energy, fix your eyes on Jesus tell yourself, I look to Jesus, not to myself. He is the Archegos and Talion of my faith. The the one who started me in the faith, the one who will finish it with me. Why was Jesus able to do this? Scripture tells us, who for the joy set before Him, there are three verbs here, endured, despising, and sat down. He endured the cross. Endured, hypermone. Mone means to stay. Hupomone, hypermone means hyperstay. What do you mean by Hyperstay. It means Jesus hyper-stayed on the cross. He despised, he endured the cross. It means, you know, Jesus could have come down from the cross anytime. At any moment, he could have called out the angels to help him, but he didn't. He hyper-stayed on the cross. He chose to stay on the cross. He despised the shame. Despised the shame and the people laughed at him, divided his clothes, jeered at him. Jesus despised the shame. Jesus thought little of them. He thought little of, of their jeers and what they said. And then he sat down. He was triumphant. Why did Jesus endure, despise and sit down? Scripture says it's because of the joy set before him. Correct? What is this joy set before Jesus? This joy that he's thinking about that caused him to hyperstay on the cross, that caused him to despise the shame, that caused him to sit down at the right hand of God. Does Jesus need more money to make Him joyful? Does He need more holiness? More glory? What is this joy? Isaiah 42 tells us, it is us. The joy set before Jesus is the 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 understanding that because of what He's doing, we will be saved. We will be reconciled to the Father. Our sins are forgiven. Our redemption done. It is finished. This is what Jesus is doing. And so the author says, keep your eyes on Jesus. You know, I was running the marathon the last few kilometers. What kept me going was looking ahead. I was not looking at that girl, okay? She was far gone. I was looking at the stadium. The stadium from afar. Every step I took, even though it was very painful, was a step closer. A step closer. And as I ran into the stadium, you know, people began cheering the the last 300 kilometers, right? in the stadium and all these people were cheering and I said, you know, when they were cheering, I thought, what, what are you cheering about, you know? For the last five hours when I'm running, right, you are just there sitting, relaxing, talking. And then I realised all of them actually have a number, you know? They are the people who completed the race, stayed back to cheer for the rest of us. And so suddenly, I thought they understood my pain, I puffed up my chest, opened my stride to finish the race. Because this these people understood. So the question for you is, when you listen to this being a marathon, how do you feel? Say the Christian life is a marathon. Some of us think, wow, very young, <laughs> Must run so long. Oh, very seong. You know, I still have to run. You know, when I hear it, what I hear? I say, wow, very grace. I said it? It is the grace of God that is a marathon. It means that there's no ultimate failure. Today I may fail, today I may sin, today I may be discouraged, but I still have tomorrow because it's a journey of a lifetime. I have a journey of a lifetime to, to grow, to change, to repent, to turn back to God. It is by grace when I keep my eyes on Jesus, He is the one that will start the race and will end it for me. I share this example. Actually, I have many of such examples, but recent one cannot share and too, too raw, you know. I shared many years ago, right? Uh, when I was in seminary, right, when we graduated, out of 300 of our students, they choose four students to preach in chapel in front of the whole school. Okay, and it turns out that there's a preaching competition. I never knew such a thing exists, you know. Anyway, I was picked and I was very surprised because I thought, wow, firstly, you must understand, I'm very introverted. I do not like to stand up in front of people to talk. So it was a struggle for me. And then in America, you know, my Singlish, or at least my accent, they cannot understand, right? So every time I talk, they say, can you repeat, can you repeat? After a few times, I say, forget it, I don't know talk. <laughs> and I even gave myself the name Isaac because the professors couldn't call my name. You know, give up. <laughs> they just call me Isaac, that's fine. Anyway, so they picked me. I attended the whole week of preaching. After everybody, I listened to everyone, I thought, I think I'll win this competition. <laughs> You know, even the preaching professors came to me and said, Ah yeah, I think you will win ready, la. So I thought that way, la. Then you know, the, the there's a chapel before graduation, all the students gathered. And apparently they give out prizes. There are about seven prizes. I thought the best student award, 4.0 GPA, I got a 3.99. I thought surely I will get it. Right? But you know it's not because I'm very intelligent. I'm just more hardworking. You see, my, my neighbors, right, the Americans, they they work and study, you know. They study till 5 p.m. at six. They go out to work, work till 3, 4 a.m., go back home, sleep. Next morning, they go to work. And then teachers give extra credit. You know, out of 100, they can give up to 110. So I'm a Singaporean. Of course, I have to do 110, right? All the extra work I do. So I thought, okay, lah, surely I'll get it. Now, you know, when the name was called, they didn't call me. I thought, wow, somebody got 4.0. But it's okay. I never wanted this. When the Best Preaching Award came, they didn't call me. And you know, in that instant, I felt so disappointed. Up to the point when the name was called, I told myself, I, didn't need this. I don't need this. But the reality was my heart was so deceptive. And then out of the blue, right? When I'm feeling so disappointed, I've never felt so disappointed in my life they, for some expo- Bible exposition of what they called my name, you know? I don't know how I won that award up to today the only thing I can think of is every Chinese New Year, I invite the department head to my house to eat steamboat. (laughs) But you know, that day when I went home, I knelt down before the Lord in repentance. I told Jesus, this is not a joke for me, you know. It's not funny. The cross before me, the world behind me, I took it seriously. I said, God, how did I become like that? Why is my heart so deceptive? But because, friends, the Christian life is a marathon, it means that I can repent. I have a lifetime to change. And that's why from then on, every time I took stage to preach, I know it's God's Word. Whether it's good or no good, God is responsible. But my job is to do my best. And so in the past, you know, when I preach a sermon, every sermon I preach, I preached at least 20 times before I got up. I was in the US, I would drive to church at 10pm and preach to an empty hall till 1 or 2am. Now, thankfully, now I don't need to do this. Every time I prepare a sermon, it's three or six months ahead of time. Why? Because I realised I'm not here to preach a sermon. I'm here to live a sermon. And if I just finish my preparation on Friday and Saturday, there's no way for me to live it. So friends, I ask you, as you follow Jesus, what is your besetting sin? What are you, what entangles you? We have a lifetime to grow in Christ-likeness. A lifetime of keeping our eyes on Jesus. A lifetime of following Him till the end. Are you growing in Christ-likeness today? Let us pray. Let's come before the Lord and once again in prayer uh, to respond to Him. What you have heard, what you're wrestling with, or simply asking the Lord to help you to grow in Christ-likeness, keeping our eyes on Him, the author and perfecter of our faith. Thank mm-hmm. you.